0: This event was recorded live at the 2015 Edinburgh International Book Festival. gathering of mathematicians around the world, so the last one in 2004 in Seoul, so for the first time a plenary lecturer talked about artificial intelligence, this field which is now growing rapidly at last. It was first imagined by Alan Turing in the 50s, now it is developing at last and uh, making uh, lots of interesting developments. For instance, he showed us how you can use mathematics uh, of the old days, like Fourier transform, to encode images. See here, this is beautiful Lena, which is the benchmark for all people working on image processing, and that's her Fourier transform here, (laughs) which is... Bit less glamorous, but very useful when you want to exchange mathematically the information. You may delete up to 95% of the uh, of the information here and still be able to reconstruct Lena just as beautiful as before. Playing little bit of uh, artificial intelligence, and similarly, he explained us if in a scanner, you know, this is for. Um, exploring inside your body, basically making a free transform of your body, you may divide by eight or ten the time that you need to remain in the machine to collect the same amount of important information. Again, with a bit of uh, intelligent handling of the data. And he was uh, developing this in collaboration with hospitals, and there are important applications in particular for medicine of kids. However, don't think that the life of the mathematician is so glamorous. (laughs) This is the usual state of the mathematician, thinking like, how the hell am I going to solve this monster difficulty? And uh, indeed, it's not that you are a mathematician, that your life is going straight. And a mathematician here is much more than just applying mathematics to teach or solve or uh, solve problems, is also create new mathematics. Every year around the world, something like 100,000 new theorems are proven, and uh, it's a big community, a big field, evolving and living, always full of new problems, and the number of problems goes increasing and increasing, not decreasing, because it's like a balloon expanding in infinite space, the frontier, what is kind of unknown, is expanding and expanding. And we spend our time thinking, how are we going to do this? This cool uh, blog uh, illustrates the discrepancy between the public perception of science, (laughs) in which the scientists start from question and uh, resolve the problem after some kind of logical process, as you learn in school, experiment, theory, experiment, whatever, and the real process, in which you wonder if something is, find out somebody did it, do science, instrument breaks, what the hell, quite expected, no, yes, amazing result, turns out to be full crap, and you go on, (laughs) what the hell is going on, and you wait, wait, and when you discover it at last makes sense, you also discover somebody did it already 50 years ago, (laughs) and again, and again. So that's your life, and everybody (laughs) who has done uh, academic research knows that's the sad and happy truth about this. In fact, this is viewed for one individual, but to have a more accurate picture. Imagine you have these thousands of loops like this for so many people, and which are interlaced because the people interact with each other, they compete with each other, etc. Such a big mess, I have to say. Even when you manage to sort out the mess and get a good result out of it, you still have to convince your peers that your result is good. And it's not the easiest part in the process sometimes. Some tragic events in the history of science uh, occurred in this way. This guy is here to recall us. This is portrait of Ignaz Semmelweis. He was a um, medical doctor and the first one who understood the importance of hygiene. Hygiene, washing hands, if you are a surgeon, if you are, uh, you know, a surgeon and you have to, uh, and you make, uh, you dissect uh, a corpse uh, to teach your students about what is in the human body and just after that you have a delivery of a baby to uh, help In between, please wash your hands, my friends. (laughs) That's what he he told his colleagues and they thought he was crazy. Look, my hands are perfectly clean, etc. In those days, so many women were dying during uh, giving birth and so on. And he wasn't able to convince them. He ended up in asylum. Uh, So that's a tragic event which kind of symbolizes how difficult it is sometimes to convince your colleagues. Eventually, eventually, truth comes out. However, So difficult to predict. Now comes another thing about science is that it's so unpredictable. In 1900, people asked asked Henri Poincaré, who was the leading, maybe the world's leading mathematician, and for sure the most famous uh, scientist in France, what science would look like in the 20th century. And his answer was, I believe we shall obtain surprising results, and that's precisely the reason why I cannot tell you anything about it. (laughs) Because if I was kind of uh, foreseeing them, how could they remain surprising? So this looks like a joke, it's a good one, I use this quote several times, you know, when on TV, some uh, journalist asks you, Professor Villani, how will science look like in 2050 or something like this? The right answer would be, what the hell do I know? And uh, if you quote Poincaré, it's a bit better, you know. <laughs> 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 and uh, when you think about it, also it's a bit deeper because when you think about it, Poincaré here with this quote asserts his belief in the fact that there was there will always be interesting new ideas to come that nobody can predict even the best scientists at the moment. And uh, this is done important and also we know from history how much one surprise can change everything. And sometimes it's just one brain having one surprising idea that will uh, change everything especially if it is amplified by the many, many brains that will take the idea, improve it, and so on and so forth. Here is a very uh, short gallery of uh, some of the people who can be considered as emblems of this power of ideas, of unexpected ideas. Of course, we all know the guy on the right. He's a national hero, Alan Turing. Uh, there is, uh, now he's also a Hollywood celebrity with... Uh, movie that came out that I don't advise you to go and see <laughs> <laughs> because it's so full of distortions that it's just unbearable. But uh, it's true that uh, uh, Turing was, uh, was a real hero and uh, without him, it would have been impossible to solve the secret cause of the Nazi Germany. Without this, it would have been... Uh, the war would have lasted at least two additional years. This is a, a quite a realistic uh, estimate. And who knows what would have happened then. However, even Turing was not doing it alone. There was a whole team working with him, led by him, but working with him. And he was not the first one. And it would have, all the genius of Turing could have done nothing. It would, it would not have been for the preliminary contribution of three Polish mathematicians who worked just before Second World War and contributed in saving the world by studying the mathematics of the German cryptography. Anyway, let's go to the second of these people, Paul Erdős. Paul Erdős may not be well known, don't know who knows in the audience about Paul Erdős. Yes, yes, a few chaps, thank you. Good to see. Uh, Paul Erdős is uh, one of these uh, wandering uh, scientists from Eastern Europe who were unrooted from the war, one of these uh, gifted uh, uh, physicists and mathematicians, either Jews or friends of the Jews, who had to emigrate from uh, Europe during the war, and who relocated in the United States and changed the face of the world of ideas making almost overnight uh, America the most powerful maker of uh, ideas. And uh, Paul Erdős was one of these people who lived only for new ideas. No home, no, no wife, no car, no job, no bank account, nothing. Just one suitcase, you know, and his mind, and going from home to home, arriving at his friend's home. I'm in town, let's work together, okay. And so on and so forth. The real wandering Jew. And uh, here's the most prolific mathematician of the 20th century. All his life was writing papers and papers. People have such respect for Paul Erdős that the American Mathematical Society allows all mathematicians to compute their Erdős number, which is a number of collaborations you have, to, um, you have to put until you can reach Erdős. If you are a collaborator, your number is 1. If you collaborated with a collaborator, your number is 2, etc. Like the father of the, of the mathematics in the 20th century. And uh, to the left of uh, Erdős, also another uh, wandering Jew, also from Hungary. Anybody here recognize this guy? Somebody, no, he's at the same time one of the most important scientists in the 20th century and completely unknown. Oh, I know my it's full, etc. <laughs> so this is Leo Szilard. Leo Szilard also emigrated. Uh, so he emigrated from Germany 24 hours before it became completely forbidden for Jews to cross the boundaries, and uh, also was uh, spent the rest of his life wandering from country to country and so on and he is the first human being who had the idea of chain reaction, that would be the principle of the atomic bomb, and also the guy who started the whole Manhattan program in the United States, ending up with uh, 100,000 people working for the atomic bomb. He, in particular, wrote the letter that Einstein sent to uh, Roosevelt for starting the program. Of course, Einstein was the superstar, But he had no idea about atomic bomb. Silat came to see him, atomic bomb, Professor Einstein, blah, blah, blah. And Einstein replied, gosh, I had never (laughs) thought about that. (laughs) And he wrote the letter to Roosevelt. That was the start of a huge program that led to more than uh, this. uh, It's still considered one of the most important uh, um, uh, technological programs ever uh, accomplished. And just one brain at the beginning, then hundreds of thousands working together. So that's uh, the power of one new idea. To the, uh, here is the, this is the patent of Fermi and Szilard for the atomic reactor. And to the very left, I put here uh, one famous uh, university to recall us that many new ideas are born in the universities, many fundamental ideas, but what makes the power... And the reputation of a great university is not the fact that people there, students there, get the best science from the best uh, scientists. It's that people from that place are able to have ideas that will be better, that will go further than those of their masters. That's the big problem of the relation from master to student, how to teach your student in such a way that he or she will become, will have ideas that go further than yours. And nobody knows exactly how to do this. Still is the central problem, how ideas are born, so that's the question which arises <coughs> from there. Henri Poincaré wrote some beautiful texts about the unexpected birth of ideas. One of them tells us about a moment in which he was working like crazy on solving a mathematical problem for days and days and uh, going on a walk with his uh, colleagues, at some point forgetting everything about his problem, at the moment where he steps back on the bus, he has the idea. Without thinking about it, it comes like a flash. Here is a famous text about him. Disgusted at my failure for some other work, I went to spend a few days near the sea thinking something completely different. And one day, while walking on a cliff, The idea came to me always with the same characteristics, very brief, sudden and immediate certainty that arithmetic transforms of quadratic ternary forms indefinite are identical to those of non-Euclidean geometry. You, of course, all know what quadratic ternary forms indefinite are, (laughs) etc., and so you understand that it has nothing to do with the cliff and that it's completely unrelated, and that's the main point. Let's insist on this because there is this popular image of Isaac Newton seeing the apple fall down and thinking of gravity and so on. It's not like this that things happen. Researchers will tell you when the flash arrives and the good idea it comes with something that has no relation whatsoever with the problem you are studying. It may be while you're in the bath, while you're walking, crossing the road, whatever. For Szilard, it was, uh, it was a light on the street that went red and paf, chain reaction, etc. Also, one reason why this text became famous probably is that Poincaré uses these barbaric names, quadratic forms, tenor indefinite quadratic forms, without any explanation so that you don't even try to understand what it is about. And focus on the important, which is the uh, circumstances, and the fact that sometimes illumination comes when you're not expecting it at all. But after you've worked like crazy about it, here he says he's disgusted by his failure because he has first worked like crazy. First prepare and work like crazy, and then at some point relax and flash occurs. And... uh, uh, 100 years after Poincaré, I did kind of the same in that book. So this is the book where I was uh, I'm talking about, sorry, Birth of the Theorem. It's very cheap, I tell you. <laughs> <laughs> and it tells you all about what is the chaotic process of the theorem making, which is the job of the mathematician. Not telling you that the science It's a problem about plasma physics, relaxation, and so on. It's interesting, but you don't want to know. Just you want to know, what is the life of the mathematician? A lot of mistakes and repairing the mistakes, a lot of nights which are spent working like crazy, sudden illumination, sometimes at wake up, caring for kids and then something unexpected, meeting somebody, failing, uh, success, etc. All this chaotic process that were illustrated in the blog and much more. And uh, the request by the French uh, editor was I want a book which tells you what is your daily life. And so I put the daily life like it is, with the barbaric words we use, barbarian words we use for we, when we discuss between ourselves, mathematicians, the places we are, the travels, and so on and so forth, and all the ingredients of this creation which is at the basis of our work. One word about the title, Theorem vivant, living, tha- living theorem. My first title actually was Naissance d'un théorème. Birth of the theorem, because that was the, the thing, uh, telling you about how the theorem begins to be born, how first it is conceived in a conversation between two individuals, which is like a fecundation. There's me and my former student, and how it, like in a pregnancy, it grows and grows until it's ready to be born, which is being published. And so I call this birth of the theorem. But then the French editor says, you know. It's a bit too explicit. We'd like something more poetic, something more... And so I came up with living theorem, which uh, evoked for me uh, Desert Lives. Living Desert, it was a book of pictures I was reading when I was a kid about the desert, one of these Walt Disney illustrating books. When we think of the desert, we think it's so dry and dead and boring. And that's the image that people have about mathematics. But when you know where to look at, we know that the desert is full of life and flowers and colors, and that's also what mathematicians know mathematics is like. So I liked it. And when it came the time for the English translation, the English editors, they said, yes, Turin Vivant, it's very poetic and so on, but you know, it would be better to have (laughs) something a bit more explicit. (laughs) And so they suggested why don't you call it Bertel Theorem? And I said, Okay, let's do it. <laughs> so anyway, in this book, let's keep this because we like to save time for the for the rest. In this book you will find in particular what I will call the seven ingredients of creation. Not just mathematical creation, but ingredients that you find everywhere. Further documentation be it online encyclopedia, or the documentation, the papers, whatever you need, because you never create out of the blue. It's always based on what other people have done. Second ingredient is the motivation. This is the most important, and this is the most tricky. Many people agree that the single biggest threat on European science nowadays is the fact that people are less and less motivated to become scientists. And uh, in the U.S., it's not a problem, they import so many. In the U.K., still, you have a good rate of importation. But in most other countries, cannot do this. And anyway, it's not healthy to import the scientists. You also want to have good scientists which are, who are grown from our kids. When I was uh, a kid, I was very fond of uh, this animated cartoon, Donald in Math Magic Land. Some people say what you uh, read and what you learn when you are 10 years old marks you for your whole life in what you will do. And it is known that Alan Turing, at age 10, read a book that influenced him for all his life in his scientific career. It was called Natural Wonders uh, Every Child Should Know. In this uh, black visit it was done in the UK. It's an experiment in which Children aged 8 to 10 together with one scientist led a scientific experiment about bees which was published by a scientific journal, discovering how cool and motivating it can be to discover for yourself something that nobody else has done. Anyway, third ingredient is the environment, sometimes a city, at one point. Arguably, Persepolis was the most innovative city in the world. Some other point, it was Paris. Some other time, it was Budapest, and so on. It it evolves. And your job, when you run an institution, is to make your institution very creative and make it that it is more than just the sum of the people who are in there because there is interaction. The fourth ingredient is the communication. You have so many of them. In the book, I reproduce transcripts of emails and so on because it... Uh, helps the, the discussion and the creation. Hundreds of emails were behind our work, most of them while I was in, the, uh, in New Jersey and my collaborator was in Paris and we would send emails, hundreds of them, to, for the uh, sake of our project. Uh, the next one is constraints. Constraints and creativity seem to be contrary to each other. But constraint is mandatory for creativity and sometimes very creative pieces come out of crazy constraints like the uh, music piece by Ligeti entirely made of A's or the uh, book by Georges Perec with no single letter E the constraint can create the creativity and is the same in mathematics. The next ingredient is the mixture of uh, hard work and illumination described by Poincaré. And the final ingredient is patience coming together with luck, waiting for the luck. You need luck, and at the same time, if you're patient and persevering, uh, you will have the luck. And let's uh, conclude with the uh, final (coughs) quote by Poincaré. Thought is like one lightning strike in a long night, But it is that lightning which is everything, yes, very precious because it's so complicated and fragile like lightning. At the same time, just one tiny uh, bit of light in the night because all we know is so tiny compared to the whole reality. And this will be the conclusion. Thank you.
1: And um, okay, first of all, I think it's worth us saying that not many people will probably understand the maths. It was certainly beyond my uh, high school maths uh, classes. Uh, but even it's more, about even
0: more. Uh, essentially, nobody would understand it. Even
1: <laughs> 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 How many you people know, would, you, would you say would actually understand it?
0: Uh, the way it is written, the way it is written, maybe uh, four or five, because it's not written like a mathematical uh, paper. It's Mm. excerpts and things. So Mm. even a professional, not knowing which is the beginning, which is the end, would see this as some random piece. Mm. If he's not an expert of the problem, will not uh, recognize. But every professional mathematician will recognize. And so many uh, told me, "Wow, reading your book, I recognize. It's really like we are doing. It reminds me so many things and so on. Mm. Because the spirit impression is this. Because it's about uh, the
1: journey, ultimately, rather than the actual It's the absolutely
0: about the journal, rather than mathematics. And uh, you're not uh, su- supposed to understand any of it. <laughs> <laughs> I even put, you know, these kind of things, it's except of real article, because in the end, you know, it's when you are doing communication in mathematics, you end up doing, you know, it's very simple. Let me explain to you, but we know it's so so damn difficult, even for us. Every day we are making mistakes. We are uh, fighting against the formulas and so on. I remember one German uh, journalist who wrote in German. It sounds better saying, "Mathematics so difficult. Mathematics is verdammt schwer." <laughs>
1: <laughs> and how important was it for you then that this was for a wider
0: audience? Oh. oh. Uh, it was the, actually, it was the um, the order. Uh, um, I would never have thought of writing such an impressionistic mm. book. As not only there are the impression of the mathematics, there's also the environment. There are some poetry, there are some songs, there's some uh, journey, what happens with the kids, whatever, because this also participates in the creation process in a way that is uh, very difficult. The culture participates in a way that is difficult to pinpoint. And uh, I wanted people to become aware of this also. And uh, it, uh, also it's intended for people who are engaged in creative process, even if it's not scientific, mm. writers and so on, people who live by the fact that they have to get a new idea. So it had to be very wide. And the editor at first, my first encounter with the uh, editor was like his request was, I'd like a book that tells me exactly what you do with your days, what hmm. it is like if I could be in your brain and so on. And I was very embarrassed. I had never thought about this. My plan was like, maybe I can write a book for people explaining how important entropy is, a mathematical concept, you know. It was very different uh, project. But he was not interested. He didn't care about the <laughs> entropy. <laughs> he did not care a heck. He wanted to know what is it like to be in the brain of the mathematician. And so I came up with a book. And, you know, sending the manuscript with all the four crazy formulas and so on to him, I was very scared. I thought maybe he will turn it back to me saying, you're crazy. I never want yeah. to hear. <laughs> but... After two weeks, he sent back and said, it's extraordinary, perf- wonderful, etc. we have to publish this, etc. This mm. was a very intense feeling.
1: Because it, it kind of goes against conventional wisdom, I suppose, in a lot of ways, because there are so many equations in there, and the, and the theme has always been, you know, keep the equations out of it, if at all possible. Yes,
0: you probably know the, the famous uh, Stephen Hawking's quote uh, from his editor, every formula divides the number of readers by two. <laughs> <laughs> If that rule would apply to my book, there would have been just a few, mole- <laughs> a few molecules of reader. Instead, it sold more than 100,000 copies. And, and have you been surprised by the, the reaction to it? Because people really have embraced it, haven't they? Yes. Uh, it was a very pleasant surprise, but also putting you at risk. I tell you, the writing book like this, it, but probably other writers will tell it. But this one was taking even more risk. The night before the uh, publication date, you cannot sleep. You're there. What happened? Why did I do it? What <laughs> will... <okay? laughs> and then arrives the first. And there's always a little bit of delay be- before people understand it. Ah, that's the way to read it. Ah, it's wonderful, etc. The first who react are those who don't understand anything and they blast you on the internet. What a stupid book, etc. And then comes a the positive reaction. And it's very intense. I received... Uh, Hundreds and hundreds of emails of readers Mm. saying, "Wow, I'm so glad I could uh, see it." Or or sometimes it's, "I'm so glad to see that mathematician likes you." Also listens to the same music I me like me. Oh, you put that that poem which I like so much, etc. And so uh, the fact that it was mixed with cultural. Um, cultural references
1: help a lot the audience because mm. so you, you describe it as being like Columbo watching an episode of, of Columbo it's not just the outcome, it's how you, it's how you get there that's
0: yes, that's the important you, you said it before, it's the journey that matters and that's it, when you r- watch Columbo it's not to know the identity of the guilty guy who matters it's how you discover it And in science, it's the biggest part of it. It's not to understand, in the end, the result. It's how you went through it, which is so damn interesting and which can be inspiration for many. So very often, I am uh, asked for public lectures, sometimes in context of companies. Recently, I was in Zurich, lecturing in front of hundreds of of investors. They don't care about the entropy or the Landau damping or the plasma physics. But uh, the ingredients for creation, this they really really, uh, care, and so they are extremely interested by this. And always this question, what can we do that will also foster the creativity that Mm. we need? And many people understood that scientists can be good reference for this, because in the science process, it's massively collaborative, even though there is a competition. It's very international and the differences of cultures do matter. There is enrichment in the uh, profiting by the various types of cultures and the environments. And also, uh, it relies on creativity. And one of the
1: things that really is striking about the book is collaboration and how important that, that is between you know, different people often working in completely different institutions as, as well. Absolutely.
0: And it's very important that at some part of the uh, process I am in Lyon, and there is some discussion, and there is some randomness, oh, I'm thinking of this, oh, this, and then my neighbor says, you know, it reminds me of this, he was completely right for a completely wrong reason, (laughs) And, uh, and, uh, uh, and so on and so forth. And at some other point, I arrive in Princeton, Institute of Advanced Studies, and it's such some kind of a place out of earth in which you can do all, all, nothing but think for days and days and it changes the dynamics and so on and you can feel uh, you can feel this also the book is uh, was uh, written but this is of course is is lost in the uh, english translation that part of it was english uh, uh, in the uh, in the text and uh, with a few with a few uh, french translations because even if we are French-speaking and so on, English is always in our world. When you are in science, is the international language of science, the most international. And so sometimes there are these uh, uh, insights and so on. Then Let me ask you about the
1: Fields Medal, because for those who, who don't know, you were awarded the, the, the Fields Medal, and that goes to mathematicians under the age of 40 um, who have, you know, Created something uh, uh, amazing in the in the field of, of math, but you discovered, um, because of a change in the rules, that actually you didn't have as much time to potentially win a Fields Medal as as you initially thought, and so it put quite a lot of pressure on you ultimately. Then,
0: yes. So, the Fields Medal, in terms of um, reputation and uh, impact and mediatic impact in particular, is the what comes closest to Nobel Prize in mathematics. There is no Nobel Prize in mathematics, but the common say that Fields Medal is like the Nobel Prize of mathematics, even though the rules are different. First, it's four people every four years and not uh, one, one person a year, typically, or two persons like would be in the, in the uh, physics. Second, it's only for young people below the age of 40. Third, it's not attributed by an academy, but it's a democratic kind of process attributed by a committee which is an emanation of the whole uh, international mathematical community. And next difference is that it is attributed at the time of the International Congress of Mathematicians during a big gathering and so you're in front of your peers, not talking to a king or something. But still, it's attributed, it's given by the head of state corresponding, Mm. in presence of the crowd of thousands and thousands of people. And uh, this is the biggest you can uh, dream of. You never say explicitly that you think of this. It would be considered like ultimate, uh, you know, uh, infatuation. Uh, And you cannot do some politics about it because the committee is secret. And you will never uh, have to, some people, of course, some people will write recommendation letters for you, but you don't know who they are, uh, you, don't, you don't know anything about the process. Just one day, if everything goes well, you receive one phone call, and it will be something like I describe. Uh, this is the, uh, it will be the president of the International Mathematical Union telling you, I have good news for you. <laughs> um, I just I'm going
1: to open up to the to the audience after this, so if you want to kind of prepare with your your questions and and so on. But I just wanted to ask you about one thing that you put towards the end of the book, which is you say that the the human brain isn't designed for mathematics. Yes. What what do you mean by that?
0: Uh, you know, I believe strongly, and uh, I'm not the, the the only one to believe this uh, uh, that. Uh, human brain, and mathematicians' brain also, is uh, first based on emotions and uh, happiness, anger, uh, fear and so on are the basic driving emotions of human beings, can be love, can be friendship and so on, and have been governing uh, humanity for hundreds of thousands of years. And It's normal that, and uh, much more than uh, logical thinking and rational thinking. Rational thinking came much more recently, and uh, it's normal because, in wildlife, let's say in nature, there is almost no advantage in rational thinking. Uh, It's even one may argue that it's a disadvantage. If you're engaged in a big fight, in a war, it's much more efficient to be irrational and ready to die for your beloved uh, king uh, than uh, trying to uh, discuss and explain and find the rationality. But when you have time and you can build things in society with people that help and so on, then rational thinking can make technology so efficient, so powerful and so on. But it's something that we had to acquire. And it took time and it's difficult. And even now, uh, mathematics, even for mathematicians, is a difficult activity. Mm. Thinking rationally is difficult, correcting mistakes is difficult, even though the amount of uh, intelligence and processing that we do all day when we discuss, when we interpret the reactions, when we do politics according to cultural features, history, it's very complex, much more complicated when you think about it than the basic uh, exercises in mathematics that we do in high school and which seem so difficult. And think about it, that uh, even the best computers, the best machines, they cannot do the things that we do routinely without thinking about it discussion is way more difficult as a a problem, as a scientific problem, than a basic uh, uh, math problem, uh, or even than uh, one of the uh, best mathematical results that we can do. And we do it routinely because it's based on the way our brain is designed. Uh, We know we are talking animals, we are very good at talking, we are empathic animals, so we are very good at sharing emotions and so on. And like our uh, chimpanzee, chimpanzee colleagues who are very good at politics. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, are there any questions or thoughts or anything that anyone wants to, to ask? We do have a microphone, which hopefully we can, we can uh, get to
0: you. Do you, you have any thoughts on uh, the scientific publication and peer review process in, in the present day and how it's being changed by uh, by, the, by the rise of the internet and things like online journals where people can pay for open access, publishing and so forth. Do you have any mm. thoughts on that? Um, it's such a tricky debate, so difficult to caricature things. Let's say that we are still... First, we are still mainly living with the old-fashioned system, and we cannot figure out what could replace it, really. Uh, the system generates a lot of frustration the way it is now. Even more nowadays, mainly because of the monster increase of the research population, I mean with the rise of developing countries. Now there are so many papers everywhere that the whole process is filled with tension and with uh, overburden and still we cannot figure out what would be a better solution. In mathematics, we are relatively spared because the increase is not as high as it has been, say, in biology, for instance. And also the process is uh, less political, I would say, than in biology, and the good old code of honor still applies to some good extent in mathematics. Um, uh, Each field has its codes computer science, for instance, they developed a culture in which the proceedings are more important in some sense than the peer-reviewed, than the papers and the proceedings are peer-reviewed and so on. Um, But in biology, this is the one that is most in crisis and uh, so much money there also. So the online journals, what did they change? Um, Accelerated. Peer review, maybe, but accelerated that comes together with less careful review. Um, All these three uh, systems, which sometimes are very, very frustrating, because you end up paying more than before. And for universities, they have to buy uh, packages which are more and more expensive. And there's a big debate with the editors, like Elsevier or Springer, saying, it's much bigger than before. It's normal that you pay more. And the university is saying, are you crazy? It costs you so much less than before because it's all electronic, you don't have all the paper costs, of this, so we should pay less. Sometimes these are huge conflicts. Huge conflicts. Uh, and so this, this is... Uh, be I could continue like hours to speak about <laughs> this about this but there's a lot of tension about peer review also it generates normally generates tensions because peer review is the mechanism by which science allows publication it's one of the definitions of science and also promotion because eventually you get promoted because you have a paper in a good review in a good journal. You have a paper in a good journal because you had a good peer review. Your fate depends on your colleagues anonymously usually, so it's, uh, it generates a lot of uh, tension, and we still think it's uh, important. Is the gentleman just down the second row. In the book, I describe the frustration when my paper is, uh, our paper is rejected, and we feel, oh, it's <laughs> so unfair, and so on. And really, it's like you are stabbed in the heart, you know, because you put so much love and energy in your paper. And after, But then there was another illumination after some time, and we managed to re- make the paper much better, and this time it was accepted. Well, thank you, Cedric. Um, I was interested by your comment. You reminded us there's no Nobel Prize for Maths. Um, one of my lecturers insisted that Maths is entirely a branch of Physics and should be taught as such. That he, he was a lonely man and I think <laughs> three, uh, <laughs> three decades on, I think he still is. But what is your take on that? And can you name any mathematicians who might be worthy deserving of a Nobel Prize in Physics if you oh. agree with that? Um, th- so, f- first, mm. <laughs> the reverse is easier. There has been case of a physicist being awarded Fields Medal, and that was Ed Witten and uh, one of the, the, the world's uh, most respected specialists of string theory, maybe. Um, mathematician worthy of uh, Nobel Prize, uh, Henri Poincaré was close and was nominated several times, and it was political also, but um, he was uh, in a time in which he could afford to be a, an expert at all of the mathematics of his time and all of the physics of his time. No, Nobody like this exists any longer. And uh, it has become so huge. Uh, it would be, I think, the view that mathematics is part of physics is, is a crazy one. <laughs> the uh, view that uh, physics is a part of math would be crazy also. Uh, what is true, however, is that both have uh, for centuries, and it started with Galileo, then Newton, and so on, they have come together. At the time of Newton it was all combined together and the book, the historical book of Newton was called uh, Philosophie Naturalis Principia Mathematica. So it was about mathematics and nature and philosophy and physics uh, at the same time, and the fundamentals. And uh, for a long time it was like this. Even nowadays a lot of mathematics is driven by physics, its inspiration and its problems but not in the way of working. The habits are still different, the way of thinking of the problem is different, and uh, the physicist will ultimately think of the reality, the experiment as the uh, essential reference, what you have to organize yourself in reference to. The mathematician will think of the uh, essence of it, the theorem, the relation, abstract relation as at the core. And to caricature things, the central question for the physicist would be how, how things occur and so on, while the central question for the mathematician would be why. What lies at the core of something? What is the ultimate reason for something? And uh, both of them argue gently, you know, Like the physicist will laugh at the mathematician. or you're lost in this 100-page proof because you want it to be totally rigorous and you want to see and so on. But the mathematician will also say, you know, you physicists don't understand that what is driving the world is this equation and this effect, etc. They argue, but they are really fascinated by each other. It's like the French and the... English, you know. <laughs> um, there's a gentleman third
1: from the back.
0: Hi, Cedric. I was interested when you said that maths is creative and collaborative at the same time. Um, I'm a teacher, a primary teacher, and, and
1: a lot of people have said the way that we teach maths is wrong. You know, we show a particular method and
0: then get the kids to copy it. Um, do you think, and you've said there's a lack of kind of researchers coming into maths in, in the UK and I guess in Western Europe in general. Do you have any advice for how we should be teaching maths? Do you think we're teaching maths in the wrong way? Very tricky, uh, very tricky question that uh, everybody is asking, and also everybody gives their opinion about this, even if they know nothing about teaching <laughs> and nothing <laughs> about mathematics, you know. <laughs> but uh, first, one has to find the balance. And it's culture-dependent. You certainly don't teach the same way to uh, to French kids or to uh, uh, British kids. And uh, it has to be also rooted in the habits of the teacher. I believe strongly some teachers are good with a certain method, and others are good with another method, and so on. And then you have to find the balance. Some equilibrium between some play, some story, some rigor, Some exercise, some repetition. In the end, uh, uh, mathematics is about abstraction. There's nothing around it. It is something abstract. You can motivate it by some concrete thing. You can root it in some concrete game and so on. But in the end, it's something about abstraction. And in the end, like in every learning process, there has to be some element of pain. It's normal. You know, you don't become a professional soccer <laughs> player if you don't uh, suffer like crazy on the, uh, on the football field. You don't become a professional writer if you don't write and write and read and so on. And you don't become good at math if you just are always just having some fun and whatever. But you need the motivation to accept the suffering. The little bit of suffering that will make you progress. So how to motivate the the, the the kid is a big issue. Uh, also the culture is evolving and time does not play for us because the more and more societies get developed and uh, life becomes easier and constraints are less and less accepted and everybody wants about freedom and uh, the, it's a problem that all societies encounter at some point the kids just believe it no, it's kind of an attack on their freedom to impose on them to study this if they don't, uh, if they don't like it. While in the old days, you would not discuss the uh, masters. Anyway, in the very old days, a master would beat you with a <laughs> uh, <with the laughs> stick if you uh, don't work and so on. Uh, but... Um, one has to find those uh, still the balance. It's important to notice that in all countries, always an important part of the uh, scientific progress is due to the migrants. People who arrive, the sons of the migrants, the daughters of the migrants, they have to find their way in the society, they have to rely on them, they saw their parents working hard, they think it's also good to work hard and so on. And um, uh, it's this motivation that uh, is one of, the, one of the real keys. Very difficult. Uh, one, it's often uh, uh, said, you know better than me that one of the reasons why uh, there was the Scottish Enlightenment and why the, the Scottish were so extraordinarily uh, strong in science at some point was that they felt kind of oppressed or that it was uh, they needed to, to find ways to, de- depending not on their uh, family and so on, but on just how good they were to make their mark. What is absolutely uh, unquestionable is that, for instance, in one of the most uh, coercive regimes in the humanity, namely the Soviet uh, regime, which was so crazily oppressive and so on, is one of the places where the scientists were most creative. And uh, they they changed science of the 20th century, the Russian mathematicians and the physicists, partly because to realize themselves they had to uh, use their creativity, they had to work hard. It was the only way for them to travel abroad was to become a, a great scientist and so they were having monster motivation. Now that the communist economies have fallen down, the motivation also has fallen down all in Eastern Europe. It's a tragedy. Hey,
1: can we just, uh, I'm gonna try and squeeze in just a couple, of, uh, a couple of questions if that's all right. There's a lady just on the front row and then the gentleman up at the, up at the back.
0: Hi, could you uh, give an opinion on the divine order behind mathematics? Mm -hmm. Uh,
1: A very quick opinion, it turns out. (laughs) Yes.
0: But it's okay, you know. uh, I am, uh, uh, as a personal uh, personal belief, I am an agnostic, so I I think the, uh, and I uh, don't have any opinion about uh, anything divine. (laughs) Uh, 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 However, I belong also to those who believe that mathematics has a pre-existence to mankind and that it exists in some world of ideas. Platonic view is the usual word for this. So I do believe I'm not making up the mathematics, but when I'm studying plasma physics, I'm uh, uncovering some relations which have existed in a world of abstraction long before. Uh, hi, I'd love to hear your thoughts about uh, scientific journalism and translating these equations to the mainstream and how the internet has made it so much easier and faster in getting word out there. Um, we need everything for to communicate about science and communicating about science is important because The world is more and more driven by science and uh, evolving so fast, if people don't feel they are associated, they have the impression they are left aside and the world is going without them and they will be uh, left aside and so on. We need to put together the society with this. And when we communicate with science, it's not only to explain about it, it's not only to make some children interested in it and get into it, It's not only to make politicians understand how important it is to spend good public money on science, but it's also to make the citizens feel that science is part of their world and that they are associated and the scientists are also human beings like them that they can refer to. And so we need everything. We need some science journalists to explain things and follow the recent developments and translate it in simplified words and putting this in relation with economic um, news and so on. But we also need the scientists to speak about their view about it, their personal feelings, their emotion, and so on. Uh, usually, uh, the majority of scientists, one has to admit, is not so good at communicating about science. Uh, uh, but they are much more legitimate to tell about the role of the scientist and the role of the discovery and so on. So we need both, we need the scientist to communicate and also the journalist to communicate. And uh, of course, when you communicate, you are always betraying. It's like in any translation, you know the famous uh, Italian say, traduttore, traditore, when you translate, you always betray. It's true also of the scientific communication and the betrayal can be serious or it can be light. but uh, one has to accept it. Scientists have sometimes more difficulty to accept it than, uh, than others and the mathematicians have even more difficulty accepting it because it's all about eternal truth and exactitude.
1: Okay, I think we have uh, run out of time but Cedric will be uh, signing books next door just in the Absolutely. in the bookshop. Um but thank you very much. Thank you to our sponsors the Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust and thank you all for coming along. Thank
0: you. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.